0: Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This is the, the second week of our, our two-part series about written comedy. Last week, we had on David Sedaris, the, the most successful and acclaimed humorist of a generation. This week, we have Kelly Connoboy, who whose debut book, The Particulars of Peter, Dance Lessons, DNA Tests, and Other Excuses to Hang Out with My Perfect Dog, came out earlier this month. For my money, uh, Kelly, who has worked at Video Gum, Gawker, The Hairpin, The Cut, while contributing everywhere else, is the funniest writer there is. Um, I should note, she's also one of my absolute best friends. We met as bloggers, in my opinion, in the sort of heyday of blogging, which is sort of like the early 10s, early teens, the 20 teens. One of those ways of calling it that time period. Anyway but even before we met i was just a fan of hers which is a nice way of saying i always was so jealous of how funny she was and i would sometimes maybe copy her it's sort of this mix of she'd have like the most whimsical ideas and then write them with this like almost satiric journalisty tone but but like write it with like a weird mix of like a journalist tone like a f- serious journalist tone and like clear ironic um, deadpan. It just, it's hard to describe, but it really is so funny, um, and I loved it so much. So, I thought I'd have her on to talk about the old days. We will focus the interview around a post that ran on The Cut in, in August 2018, entitled, Do Men Enter Bathtubs on Hands and Knees So Their Balls Hit the Water Last? Which many consider Kelly's blogging masterwork. And aren't you in luck? She will read it to you now. So, here is. Kelly Connaboy.
3: The bathroom is a mysterious place. What goes on inside varies for everyone, or maybe it doesn't. We simply do not know. The question has prompted some discussion in the past, and I suspect it will continue to do so until we are all under 24-hour government surveillance, at which point the answers will be known by those with access to the government's live feed. But for now, with the door closed, we can only suspect and ask questions. Here's one. Do men enter the bathtub on their hands and knees in order to ensure their balls hit the water last? In an August 13th post on Motherhood Message Board Baby Center, one commenter, username Snattlebeans, posited they do just that in a posting under the subject testicles in warm water. Here's the post in full. My little boy has never liked his baths. The only thing that works is wrapping him in a towel and then dipping the whole bundle in so he gets wet gradually. Today I forgot this step and just dipped him naked. L-O, which means little one, was arching away from the lukewarm water and screaming, and it suddenly dawned on me that maybe the traumatic part is that his testicles hit the water first. Adult men get into a bath on hands and knees, so the balls hit the water last. Could this be something I've just totally missed because I'm a woman? Not sure how to address it, but I thought I'd ask in case anyone has insight. I recommend reading the entire resulting thread. It is very good. But sadly for snattlebeans, it is also full of skeptics taken not by the baby testicles part, but instead, of course, by the idea that adult men get into the bath on their hands and knees so their balls hit the water last. My baby loves the bath and I put him in ass balls first, offered one mother. She added, also, I've never heard of men entering on hands and knees. I've never heard of a man entering a tub that way either. It's definitely not how my DH, which means dear husband, has ever gotten into a bath, writes another. Your man is weird AF, which means as fuck. If that's how they get into a tub, said yet another. One poster said she asked her husband if he entered the tub this way, and he then went on to ask the 10 guys he works with, an open workplace. None of them have ever thought to do this, she said. There's no way water can get to your husband's balls first unless it planks across the tub and lets his junk in the water, said one poster with a confident exactness. The original message resulted in, essentially, 10 pages of women saying they had never heard of such a thing, and lady, what the fuck are you even talking about? But after the posting was shared with me by, just to explain myself briefly, my editor Jen Gann, who was the mother of a young boy and allowed to look at message board posts about child testicles without judgment, it piqued my curiosity. First, about the logistics of the balls entering last. Her husband or whoever crawls into the tub on his hands and knees okay, my former colleague and current acquaintance man and father of two boys, Tom Skoka said in an extended discussion about the topic. So now he's like crouching in the water with his shins and knees and forearms and elbows submerged and his torso and butt and head all above the water still. So he has to roll over somehow and get his body into the water. But I'm stumped on the topology of how balls hit the water last. He continued, I just feel like the balls are basically in the middle of the x, y, and z axis of the body, and there is no way to make them go anywhere last. Head, torso, balls, legs. No matter how you dunk a body in the water, the balls can't be last in. It is a pickle. To better visualize, I've drawn up a few safer work illustrations of how it might happen using a bean animal with stick limbs for the male body and a green smudge for the testicles. As you can see, the hands and knees method, while not dipping the testicles in first, would certainly not dip them in last. As the body is lowered into the water, they would arrive likely before the torso and obviously before the back. And now I I have a little, um, a drawing of a tub with the little bean animal and his limbs in the water and also his green testicle smudge in the water. If a bath taker raised up his butt, however, in sort of a doggy style or extended puppy pose position, the testicles would come closer to entering the water last. Still they wouldn't enter last. And here I have a a drawing of uh, the same tub, same bean, stick animal man, his little butt in the air, his limbs submerged with his little uh, green smudge testicles above the water. It seems to me that in order to delay the entry of the testicles for as long as possible from the hands and knees position, one would have to raise half of his body like so, and now the little stick man has his right arm and leg in the water, his left arm and leg raised. And then lower that half on the opposite side in a crab walk pose. And so now you can imagine the green stick man has his little stick limbs um, lowered so he's in sort of a crab pose, like I said. Then he could lower his head and torso into the water while slowly sinking his limbs and maybe a little bit of his butt in. He would have to stretch out his legs in front of him, and this would likely require a large bathtub depending on the height of the man while holding the rest of his butt and testicle area above the water for as long as his body allows. But is there any medical reason to raise one's balls above the bathwater so they hit it last? I reached out to several urologists asking the balls question and surprisingly to me, but perhaps not surprisingly to you, at the time of writing, I have not heard back from almost any of them. I did hear back from one, however, Dr. David Kaufman of Central Park Urology. Here's what he said. As Groucho Marx once said, That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. No, the scrotal skin is no more sensitive than skin anywhere, and the testes are not particularly sensitive to temperature, though of course prolonged heat is not good for spermatogenesis. Any man crawling into a bathtub are doing it with a different agenda than discomfort. Happy to help. Hmm. But what about a baby's testicles? Are they different? I reached out to several pediatricians clarifying that I was working with parenting editor Jen Gann on a story and, uh, anyway, are babies' testicles particularly sensitive to warm water? Surprisingly to me, but perhaps not surprisingly to you, at the time of writing, I have not heard back from almost any of them. I did hear back from one, however, Dr. Dean Hess at Gramercy Pediatrics. She was on vacation but offered, I'm not sure that this is an issue. Never heard it was a problem for babies. Interesting. For more insight into whether warm water hurts a baby's testicles, my colleague Izzy Greenspan reached out to the person she knows best, who was most recently a baby, her five-year-old son, Joey. In response to the question, do you think baby boys don't like baths because it's too hot for their testicles, Joey reportedly said, what's a testable? Hmm. Honestly, I mostly don't know. Thank you, Joey. Perhaps it is not a question for doctors or children, however, and instead a question for bathtub manufacturers. Has bathtub design taken into account the fragility of man's balls, and if so, how? Do bathtub manufacturers have a suggested way of entering the bath for men? Had they done research into how men enter bathtubs before designing their bathtubs, and if so, could they share any of that research with me? I reached out to several, and again, surprisingly to me, I did not hear back from most. Pitiful. I did hear back from one, however, American Standard. That is definitely a question I've never heard before, Kelly, said Nora De Palma, who does PR for the brand. She said she would check and then check back in with me the next day. Quick check-in. As of Friday afternoon, we have not yet found anyone who could verify how men enter bathtubs. I asked my husband how he gets into a bathtub, and he responded with, I don't take baths. So that was less than helpful. Alas, she was never able to find anyone who could verify how men enter bathtubs. Still, I deeply appreciate Ms. Palma's effort and her husband's frankness. Back to the Baby Center post. In the face of mass disagreement and the idea that her husband was just a weirdo, the original poster weighed in. Not just DH, but previous boyfriends as well. It is too a thing. When asked to clarify how this happens, she wrote, knees first and then hands if I recall correctly. When I remarked on the weird technique, the answer was, well, you don't have balls. Go ask your menfolk and see what they say. Of course, I had to ask my menfolk to see what they said. On Twitter, I requested men tell me how they enter the bathtub, and luckily, many emailed to enlighten me. Thank you. A man named Parker said, I just step in, sometimes slowly if I run the bath too hot. When asked if he's ever heard of men attempting to put their balls in last, he said, I don't want to be unnecessarily crass here, but one's balls are in the middle and go in at about the 50% mark. A man named Michael said, I run it super hot and throw some Epsom salts in there. Regarding men getting in on hands and knees, he said, I've never heard of anything like that. A man named Barry said, Is there more than one way to enter a bath, besides fill up the tub, then step in the tub and recline in it? I told him the other way is, of course, on hands and knees. He said, I have never heard of such a thing. I refuse to believe that is a real thing. Also, balls are only an issue when the water is cold. That's why the hardest thing about going in an ocean is psyching yourself up to make the leap to groin deep. But a bath is warm and nice and welcoming to all testicles. A man named John said, I didn't know there was a plethora of bath entry methods. I put my feet in, swish the water around a bit so it's not too hot in one spot, and then plonk my butt down on the tub. Has you he ever heard of the hands and knees method? No. A man named Eric said, I like to shower first, then, after a few mins, plug the drain so it starts to fill up, that way the water does not get gross and filled with pee. Once the water is at a good level, sliding down the back wall into the tub like I just got shot in a movie, is the best way to get into the actual tub. It's fun. I am kind of tall, though. I tell people I am six foot three, so probably actually six foot one, but it still makes most baths too small to enjoy for more than a few mins. Also, bubbles are good if available. When asked if he's ever heard of the hands and knees method, Eric offered a bit of startling insight. Not that I recall. Some sort of crab-like walk from gym class is the only other method of entry I ever remember using. But I have only ever had shower-bathtub combos as an adult, so hard to say if a full-sized freestanding bath would change my approach. Some sort of crab-like walk from gym class? Some sort of crab-like walk from gym class? Like this? And then uh, uh, you see my little illustration of the, the crab in the bathtub. A man named Brad emailed me to tell me he got in the normal way, but when asked if he had ever tried crab style, he said, Kelly, in fact, I have. Crab style was in fact my preferred entrance method as a child and young person until hot tubs taught me the superior value of easing your way in. Incredible! A man named Jesse emailed in without even so much as a prompt offered this. I am a man and I kind of get into the bath like a crab. I do a squat and inch my body very slowly into the water as the tub fills up because I get squeamish about the heat. My fiancé described me getting into the bath as, You do a funny thing where you hold yourself up by your arms behind you so your balls don't get into the bath until you're ready. Hope this helps with whatever you're trying to do. Jesse, it helps more than you know. Michael Rosten from the New York Times also gets in like a crab. In a tweet, he said, I think the last time I took a bath it was like a crab, but I had hurt my back so I needed to ease in and not get hurt worse. Seems like men are out there getting into the bathtub like crabs. But what of Snaddlebean's theory then? How did she come to think men were entering on their hands and knees to protect their balls, when in fact men are entering like freaking crabs to protect their balls, or in the case of Michael Roston, do not hurt his back worse? I reached out to her through the Baby Center private messaging system to ask how she developed her theory. She agreed to answer, but requested I leave her name out of the piece, as her husband is already mortified. Luckily for her, I do not know her name, and also I love her. Here is what she said. It was from Personal Observation. Maybe hands and knees is a bad description on Reflection. It's more just getting in, then sinking to knees, before slowly lowering in the, uh, merchandise. I saw more than one man do this, so I guess I thought lots of men do. And despite evidence to the contrary, I absolutely believe lots of men do too.
2: So I'm here with the writer behind the story you just heard, Kelly Connaboy. Thank you for joining me.
3: Oh my gosh, thank you for having me, Jesse.
2: Um... I'd like to provide um, my lovely listeners some context about what we mean by blogging before we get into this uh, so they can understand the world that gave birth to us uh, as we are 1 million years old, especially me, but neither of us is 2 million years old. Uh, we're talking about a very specific era of the internet. Um, so before you started, which I guess was like around 2010 and the few years after that is like where we around when we both started. But Before you started writing professionally, what was your evolution of knowing what blogs were, finding ones you liked? You know, what was the first one you really loved? Why? What did you like about them?
3: The first one I really loved remains like one of the few that I ever really loved, which was Video Gum, Um, which I learned about um, through a friend of mine who... I, I was sort of getting into writing and and he read my writing and was like, you know, I think you would really love this weird offshoot of stereo gum, um, called video gum. Uh so that is how I found video gum and I was, you know, immediately obsessed with it. Um, Lindsay and Gabe were there at the time. Um and they were both so funny. Um and from there I, I think I was really into like Richard Lawson's Gossip Girl recaps at um, Gawker. I was super obsessed with those. Um, And I guess Video Gum is really what opened up (laughs) the entire world. (laughs) And
2: Lindsay and Gabe is Gabe Delahaye and Lindsay Robertson. Yeah. Right. Cool. Um, Do you remember a specific post from Video Gum that you're like, this is it?
3: There was a post on McSweeney's that was like I don't know if you would remember this one, but it was like by Teddy Wayne I think that, and it was Ashton Kutcher fan fiction, but written from the viewpoint of like a middle schooler going to her like dance. Yeah. Um, and I remember being in class in college and reading that on my computer and just having to stifle real laughter. Um, I'm thinking it was so funny.
2: What did blogging represent for you as a goal, as a thing you wanted to write?
3: Um, yeah. I mean, that when we were getting into them, it was sort of a weird time um, because they seemed, especially with Video Gum and The Best Week Ever blog and even stuff on Vulture, like the yeah. recaps, They it was like so um a part of the comedy world in a way that is it is just not anymore like um like at video gum gabe leadman and like joe mandy were blogging and like max silvestri did top chef recaps um, yeah i mean
2: like that's how i feel like i heard of i feel like i went to big terrific the comedy show that like gabe and max mm-hmm. and jenny slate hosted I think because of video gum is I mean Oh I did
3: too. Yeah. I went definitely because of Video Gum. And then every single week after that. Um yeah, no, I only ever it's sort of strange to think about. Um I mainly only wanted to write for Video Gum, which was not an option because Video Gum was Gabe and Lindsay and then it was just Gabe. Yeah. Um,
2: um so To teach the people about what blogging is because I don't I have no sense of like if people even know it like I feel like to us it's like oh of course blogging but I feel like we have to um, be more particular. So for the first few years we built a version of news blogging which Mm -hmm. uh, broadly is to write a story based on something in the news whether it's a pretty straightforward aggregation with like some jokes at the beginning or something that like takes the news as a jumping off point for something tangential. Um, right, And I think you see you still see parts in uh in both our writing. What was your approach to news blogging? How did it evolve as you went through different places?
3: Um Well, I think it sort of evolved in kind of reverse, um, meaning like video gum was just it was only creative. I feel like it okay. wasn't, you know, you didn't go to Video Gum to get news you got you went to video gum to like hear about a celebrity thing and have it be packaged in like some sort of creative and entertaining way or like a video same like packaged in some sort of entertaining way um so that's like what i was trying to do just take whatever existed um in the news or like in viral videos and sort of be creative with using it Mm -hmm in a blog post. Um, But then when I went to Gawker, I was still doing that, but it it just, because people actually went to Gawker to learn information, um, (laughs) (laughs) there had to just be more like straight aggregation or like um, at least getting facts across in, in a funny way.
2: I remember, I was recently reading old posts and I was like, you have no, I've written things that this, when I first started, even when I first started Vulture, you're we like, you have no idea the information of the thing that I'm telling you about. Right. Like, I wouldn't put like when the movie was coming out. I'd be like, a movie's <laughs> coming out. And like, Vulture, you were supposed to do that. But like, by that time was like, I'm here to like, be a joke writer. Like, to right. it was like monologue joke writing, where yours were like more expansive.
3: Yeah. But I think both are just like, I'm here to entertain me. Yeah. <laughs> This Wait, is what just... I think is funny, and this is what I care about, which is not facts. Yeah.
2: We already learned the facts. We yeah. learned the facts when we read it. So now right, I'm just doing- If you doing... want to know
3: them, go read the article that we read. I'll link to it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> do you have a Do you have posts of video gum that you remember? That you were like, this was good? Even now?
3: There was one where, like, I I did a fake screenplay for, like, Something Batman Superman related. Yes, that I remember thinking. Huh, I think actually this isn't bad. Like with a lot of my writing, especially then, less so now. But I just it came with like a lot of self, um, just like a lot of criticism from mm-hmm. myself to myself. Um, but with that one, I was like, huh, actually this one is pretty funny. Um,
2: Which. I may or may not have stole for a play
3: I I know. I, wrote. <laughs> I think it was just, you know.
2: <laughs> Parallel thought. Though I probably yeah. did read your post, so maybe I did steal it. Um, <laughs> so then um, by 2016, um, everyone stopped blogging, uh, especially everyone we knew, including me. Um, <laughs> you wrote a blog post on the hairpin titled, Blog You Idiots. Asking everyone who was good at it uh, to blog. And everyone was like, yes, Kelly, definitely. You keep on doing it. We're going to do something else. <laughs> I feel like everyone, including myself, was like, yeah, I missed this. I'm going to get back to it. And then no one did. I know. Um,
3: the, the response was very enthusiastic and then nothing happened. Yeah. which is you know,
2: Why do you think uh, blogging as we knew it ended?
3: Um. Well, I wrote that post the day or two days after Gawker um, died, mm-hmm. after like the final day of Gawker. Um, so part of it is definitely that the places just don't exist anymore. Um, like you know, Hairpin, VideoGum, yeah, Gawker, none of them exist. Vulture still exists, um, but that so that's part of it. And like, there's no, I think people realized. The people in charge realized, like, well, this is not making me the the amount of money that I could be making if it's mm-hmm. just somebody, you know, rewriting about Meghan Markle or whatever. Um, and then I think also Twitter is sort of yeah. a huge killer of anything um, good yeah. <laughs> in general, and also in terms of blogging. I think um, if people. If they didn't have this outlet for their stupid little jokes, um, they might be more inclined to put them in, yeah, a blog post.
2: Yeah, I've, it's. I feel like you don't say it anymore, but I do feel like Twitter started and called themselves a micro blogging platform, mm-hmm. and right. then there's just like now it's only Twitter and there's no real like there's like Vulture. We have some sort of news blogging, but it's it's not around that time there wasn't this thing of a culture of bloggers and like you went into it to be bloggers and you did not see it as like a path to journalistic success. Um, I stopped partly because um, my bosses didn't want me to do it anymore. I was doing other stuff and they're like, please do the other stuff that as you said, like gets us more traffic, but also um, 2016, I don't know if you know, this was the year Trump ran for president.
3: Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm
2: and i know i felt really um weird to do sort of like fake news when there was like real news being done
3: yeah definitely there were a lot of
2: people questioning of like journalism's failures around that time and i was like am i contributing to it am i at like um i also remember we did a post that um was about um Empire and a for a, a vulture style news post you usually sort of have like a fun thing at the beginning maybe it's a joke and then you like write three facts give or take and then you have a joke at the end that's like goodbye we put a joke this sentence is fake and because all of our readers, I assume knew that, you would just like you'd take advantage of that and do like really deadpan jokes in the final sentence. Mm -hmm. because you don't want to like really do a big swing and make a big deal of it because you want it to be more of an inside joke and i remember um i think i pitched the jokes but it was alex's post and it was something about like zach efron being cast on empire and but it was said really straight because he'd worked with lee daniels i don't know and a bunch of people aggregated it as real information and i was like oh like the internet's full of strangers
3: Yeah, it makes it harder to have uh, a little community where you do super silly stuff. Um, Yeah. 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 So,
2: but you persevered, and we all thank you for
3: it. Oh, I try.
2: I think, um, I mean, I remember in 2018, we're going to have to talk about the story. The the internet, a place that used to seem okay, uh, now is really bad, uh, except for you, who stayed good. Uh, you were writing for The Cut, uh, but you weren't necessarily doing the news as much. Like, you did some of it, but, like, a lot of it where you do these stories that wouldn't have news pegs, but I would, I don't know, I would still categorize them as blogging. Mm-hmm. Would Would you? Like, if so, what does it mean if it's not sort of reactive in the same way?
3: Um. Yeah. Um. I think of... Basically everything i do as on the internet as blogging
2: um you and i have talked every day for like the last six or seven years and for many of those years i'd pitch you ideas and say you should write these things and you'd laugh and um say sure and then you would never do any of them mm-hmm. uh, which is <laughs> uh it's okay but some ideas you did do for context is y- you built a gingerbread house that could fit peter your dog uh, you asked, like, one million famous chefs if bay leafs actually do anything. Uh, you did a story about uh, what do guys keep in their backpacks. You made a giant cinnamon roll. Uh, you got Tony Hawk to teach you how to do an ollie. You did it, that story about whether soup is a beverage or a food. Um, when you are looking, f- what are you looking for in an idea? This is, like, I've always, this is truly I've always wanted to know. What are you looking for in an idea? Like, talk to me what it feels like for there to be something worth looking into,
3: um, just a genuine curiosity, um, mm. or a genuine like with bay leaves, like a genuine grudge that I have, or, or I did a similar thing. Well, not similar, but um, for the Atlantic, I wrote about the like U shaped pillows people wear on airplanes and like mm. how they're just terrible and and um. So yeah something a genuine curiosity or genuine grudge is something I or something I uh genuinely really care about um yeah, yeah the trouble with like I think it's easy to um c- like come up with an idea and be like, oh yeah, that's like a story for Kelly um <laughs> because they're all like stupid and little and like there are a million stupid little things um. But the difficulty is like, if I don't actually care about it, it's yeah. hard to really sustain it for the amount of like energy that I have to put into it for it to justify its own existence most yeah. of the time. Um, like I <laughs> I have a friend who we were talking about this once, and she was like, "If I wanted to do that, I would have thought of it.") <laughs> Which sounds really um, like bitchy, but it's like sort of it's just like about being honest, like with yourself and the things that you find entertaining and the things that you're curious about.
2: I have learned I am the opposite, which is editors have at Vulture have learned the trick for me is to keep on asking me about ideas that I've already said no to. But if they ask me about enough times, I will start thinking about it and then come up with something to say about it. (laughs) (laughs) So where did the bathtub thing start? Was it a thing where Jen was like, oh, this might be worth it? Or she was just telling you? like, uh, Walk me through hearing it from Jen and being like, oh, there is something here.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The bathtub thing is actually, um, it maybe sort of contradicts everything that I just said. But um, yeah, my editor at The Cut, Jen Gan, her friend passed this post from the message board along to her. And she thought it was funny and she showed it to me and was like, Would you want to do something with this? And I uh, said yes, not knowing like what I would do with it. But Mm -hmm. it it was so funny that I was like, Yes, of course. Do do not show this to anyone else. This is mine, (laughs) you know? Um, So, yeah. So she showed it to me and then I just basically had to work through all of my own questions about it. And Yeah. um, yeah that's kind of how it started
2: it fits into one of the themes of your work is which is like the funny little curiosities into the secret lives of men like Mm -hmm. where you're examining what are traditionally completely unexamined lives um (laughs) what gives why
3: why men Why men they're just so interesting like (laughs) like yeah, so I did, I'm trying to think of what other posts. There was the one about what they keep in their backpacks. And um,
2: the, the Instagram ads one.
3: Right, the insta, yeah. So it's like what men are always carrying around backpacks full of like USB things <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> like why and what is in them. Um, and then, yeah, what, like I know so intimately my own, ads on Instagram (laughs) for like, you know, bras and socks with your dog's face on them. Um, But like, what could they possibly be seeing? Um, And I guess it's all just like those muscle guns that you, for like tight muscles or whatever. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it's just, uh, I just feel like I don't have access to the, you know, straight, male mind and also they don't have access to the straight male mind and that is very interesting to me <laughs> so yeah
2: no that makes sense Um <laughs> so when you start what is it like Um like is it, is it like a complete blank slate of like I need to f- I have no thoughts and I'm going to figure it out do you feel like you can see what it's going to be and then you have to like f- fill in the details what do you do
3: um yeah I feel like um, when I have an idea it it's sort of like if it's an idea that is worth pursuing, I can see all of the different angles I want to take on it mm-hmm. um and if it's not an idea worth pursuing, then like I think it would be harder. but yeah, for most of them, like um, like this one or or the cinnamon roll or like um. The gingerbread house or any of them. Um, yeah. I could pretty quickly come up with all of the different things I want to do, like the different sorts of people I want to talk to. Yeah. Um, the different things I have to do. Um, and then it's just about doing it. Like it's about yeah. getting people to talk to me. And it's about doing the activity if it's building a gingerbread house. Um and then after that, it's just about figuring out how to use each one of those elements so like I didn't waste my time doing it. You know what I mean? Like figuring out how to like justify all of the different research I did or all the different interviews I did so that it makes sense that they're in the story and they don't feel like a waste of time when you're reading them.
2: We'll be right back with more Kelly Connoboy.
1: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block
0: and we're
2: back with Kelly Connoboy. So so I want to go through order article in order cuz it's the easiest though who knows the order in which any of these things happen but so the the article starts with the bathroom is a mysterious place. Uh you set the stage the stage is the bathroom.
0: Yeah. And then <laughs> the
2: what is um one thing it captures and it's something that you have to deal, deal with a lot within in your book as uh is the nature of pet ownership is bathroom talk and humor. Though I think of you as a very proper writer. Or very or like you just don't you're like a a not dirty writer. Yeah. And like the like you you'll write often that as private. <laughs> yeah.
3: I really um, I'm not comfortable um talking about it. Uh, I'm not a person who's like talking about I don't I'd rather even I'd not I'd rather not say what I don't want to talk about, but you know what I mean. Like No, I know. I don't want to talk about poop, you know, farts. It's not yeah. it's not my comfort zone. <laughs> so
2: for a thing like this, how do you approach it? Same thing with the book. It's like you know you're gonna have to talk about it. How do you do it in a way that you feel like it's still true to yourself?
3: Um I guess often like you said, I'll mention that it's private or just that like, listen, there's no way to get around this. I have to talk about picking up my dog's poop or just being honest with... um, I never try to pretend like I'm a person who's comfortable with it is, I guess, the Mm -hmm. thing.
2: Yeah. So the next... So you, um, you have the quote of this person setting it up and then what is nice is you have... The people reacting to the original post, so you don't have to be like, "This post is crazy." Mm-hmm. Um, and then you do a thing, and I'm going to read it with the punctuation, which is, you know, this is just classic Kelly stuff. Uh, <laughs> so you're, you're right. One poster said she asked her husband if he entered the tub this way, and he then w- then went on to in in quotes ask the ask the ten guys he works with end quotes, and then in parentheses you wrote an open workplace. You use parentheses. Parentheses is part of the lexicon or the vocabulary of blogging. I feel like it's parentheses, all caps, like unnecessary punctuation. Um, it also does the thing that I think defines your writing. What? How do you use parentheses? You use it throughout the book, but it's deliberate. What do you try to do with it? How do you make sure you're not too much? What is your parentheses uh, philosophy?
3: I think... Um, I I probably use them a lot of different ways, but I think I use them most often as sort of just another layer of talking directly to the audience. Like, I think it happens in the book a few times where I'm trying to tell a story and I say something that's sort of a lie, and then I want to admit that it's sort of a lie in parentheses. So it's, it's just sort of a, a direct address sort of thing.
2: You then um, go on to... Use the thing where Gen Gen asks you to do it and then explain that that justifies why you're doing this, which is a thing you do a lot, which is like, this is okay. I'm allowed to do this because of whatever reason. <laughs> um, I guess the thing that I wonder is as you, um, we were talking about a little bit earlier, like before this, which is like, I feel when you started, there would be like more explanation points. And I think just in general, mm-hmm. there we as a society had more exclamation points. And then you sort of settled on a sort of drier tone. Um, And it got me thinking, you know, with standups, there are often conversations about persona and what version of yourself you are on stage. And when you get good enough at writing, you have more control over the version of yourself you're conveying to the audience. Uh, Like I know you and you are the person who wrote this article, but you're also not the person. You're not always talking like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Clearly you want the reader to think, this person they are reading is unusual um but you're they're not spending time with like the weirdest person on earth. Uh, how would you categorize your writing self? Who is this person?
3: Um yes. Yeah. yeah, I would say it's like um a, a dumber but also much more confident <laughs> arrogant version of me. Um and one who is like, yeah, it's sort of a fake um, reporter tone where it's, you know, taking itself very seriously, but also um, talking about balls in the bathtub. Mm. Um, that's sort of what I'm going for.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you then ask men about this article and you ask men also later. What are those conversations like when you have conversations like this?
3: With men about articles? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> for this one, it was um sort of surprising how uh the men I talked to how willing they were to talk to me about their balls. I guess it shouldn't have been surprising, but they were just very game to be like to either tell me that they do or do not try to put their balls in last when they get in a bathtub. I I guess I shouldn't have been surprised though. But um for other stories i think men can be i mean people know when you're trying to make fun of them when yeah. you ask you know your friend hey i'm doing this story about what men could possibly be carrying around in their stupid backpacks you know they're not going to be like oh well let me get mine out and check <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> I
2: feel like if yeah, when you've asked me, I'm like I don't have anything funny to say, so I don't want to waste your time.
3: <laughs> I mean, this one
2: I'm sure I would be like I don't want to talk about it. But
3: right, uh, yeah, and I I know you wanted to note that the Jesse in this post is not you. Yes, no. So way. we can make that clear.
2: But the Instagram one, I think I told you, and I'm like it's not interesting. Um, right.
3: Yeah, and I mean I think that's probably also with the kind of stories I do, people think their answers are not going to be interesting, but they are.
2: There you go. <laughs> uh, that's true um so then you go into this part where you ask experts and this is like the kelly thing where you talk (laughs) to these experts and the thing is i'm always like how do you find these people throughout all of your writing they are the they're from all over the world in the book you have people (laughs) from australia what is what is it like well who are these people how are these people (laughs)
3: um It's really not that, I mean, I find them on the internet. Um, If it's like some science adjacent person, I'll look for studies that are related to what I'm writing about. um, And then I'll try to get in contact with the authors of those studies. It's like partly um, a numbers game, I guess, just reaching out. Because my questions are always like silly. Yeah. So it's finding enough people who are related to the topic that I'm discussing, um, finding enough people that one or two of them will say like, okay, I'll talk to you about how to keep bees out of your dog's gingerbread house or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, okay, I'll talk to you about what it would take for dogs to actually play in the NBA or whatever.
2: What I always like about at least for me, is like when I think of reporters, Like I think of you as like the least reportery person that I know that is a journalist. Like Mm -hmm. because like the like idea of the reporter is like a grizzled person who's like knocking on doors of strangers and like yelling at them until they give them the information. And like, I know you are shy, you've told me you're shy. In the book, you talk about being shy. Um and then even in the book, you will like talk to people at these events. And how have you adapted to have these conversations? Do you feel like it's easier if these conversations are like in character? We're like, I'm a reporter answering these. Like, are you more comfortable talking to
3: people this way? No, (laughs) I'm always extremely uncomfortable talking to people. (laughs) And I do a lot of my reporting via email, which helps. Um, It also helps to just like email a ton. Like for the Bay Leaves chef post, I ended up with like quotes from 30 or 40 chefs. And that was a result of emailing like, 120 chefs you know
2: <laughs> you then it's like now you're in the third act you um you're back to the message board their response you reach out to twitter um you get the sort of crab revelation mm-hmm. um i imagine all of this is sort of happening at the same time so ha- when you have all this stuff how do you determine oh the ending is going to be the sort of this like the crab reveal mm-hmm. it's like How? What? What made you? At what point? When you're working on, you're like, "Oh, I'll end this with the crab," and that's that's where it's going to go.
3: I guess that it wasn't until I had all of the parts together that I puzzle pieced them um, into the the story, Um, which doesn't always happen. Like I've done a million stories that didn't actually have this sort of semi (laughs) revelation at the end, (laughs) Um, like you know talking to dentists about why they're mean. I did a story about that and like, the answer was like, dentists don't think they're mean, (laughs) which is not, you know. um, So in that it's just sort of telling the story in order. But yeah, with this one, because I was doing it all at the same time, um, and in that process realized that there was actually this strange thing happening of men going into tubs like a crap. it, it was just about trying to piece it together and and hold out on telling that part until the end.
2: Yeah. And then so the ending, ending, are you working on that? What are your goals with a kicker, as they call it, the last sentence in a story?
3: Um, I guess my goal with that, well, that was another thing, I guess, about this ending, which was that I did not expect the original poster to talk to me about it. Um. Yeah because i you know i messaged her and i was like i'm doing this story about your weird post about putting your baby's testicles in the water but yeah no she was game and she just i really endeared herself to me so i guess i wanted to end with kindness to her yeah <laughs> cuz
2: she's the hero of the story
3: yeah i think she's great she's like funny and and i wanted to end um just acknowledging the fact that it is strange that Men are genuinely doing weird things. Yeah. <laughs> because of their testicles. Just very strange.
2: The story gets released. Um, it's very popular. There are three reactions that I've noticed. Um, one that I love, one that I hate, and one that was like uh hurt men that, that were like, This, this is this is messed up or whatever. They they felt some reason you were being sexist, and it's not worth our time to discuss the third option. So <laughs> um but the first one uh, I love, which is, I don't know if you read comments, but the top comment on the article is from someone named The Ambivolist, uh, and they wrote, how many of us have come across a weird phenomenon and said, what, is that really a thing? And gone down our own little wormhole of an investigation. You took that and turned it into art and got credit <laughs> for it at work. Queen. Um, so this is a particularly evocative version of what is sometimes a, a snarky comment that i think we've both gotten which is like you got paid to do this oh, or yeah. i personally love it when people are like this is your job lol um right. and i think it's the it's my favorite possible response um what do you think about it
3: well with the snarky one where people are like this is your job it's um i do sort of agree like it is very dumb that this is my job <laughs> like i just wrote 600 words about like a celebrity eating a carrot or whatever like yeah they're being mean but it's like i i, I agree like it absolutely rules can you believe yeah. it <laughs> yeah it's
2: like this is what we're doing we're grown-ups this was it's like part of like what the entire article is about is that
3: yeah. this is your job yeah i guess that's that's also like the longer i i go on um trying to figure out a stupid question it's just m- part of it is to um Make it obvious how dumb it is that I'm doing it at all. Um, yeah. But comments are one thing, but when other people in media say stuff like that, like, I just wish more people would make content out of the silly stuff they think, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But. No,
2: I think I think the more pointed version of it, and I will say a negative thing about people first so that you can then say <laughs> negative things about people. Um, so the other most common reaction, and you saw this on Twitter a lot, which I think is lame, except for whenever I've done it, and then it's cool, um, <laughs> is when people go like, now this is real journalism. Like they're being, right. they're the joke. Or this is some important, serious journalism. Or s- right. stuff. Right. Um,
3: or like which this th- is actually you actually did some reporting for this like yeah
2: <laughs> i think it sucks um what do you think about it
3: people are obviously just trying to be nice which yes. is nice um but yeah it definitely is like a way if if it's a person in media or a journalist doing it it's definitely a way to be like <laughs> this is going to be really mean um <laughs> Maybe to sort of excuse their lack of creativity to be like, mm-hmm. well, this is an a, other thing that is like silly and useless, which it is. But yeah, it's a way to just sort of put it in a box as like yes, unimportant and to, you know, then carry on with your whatever you think you, you're doing. That's so great.
2: <laughs> yeah. One allows them to show that they're smart for being in on a joke, mm-hmm. um, which is like, congratulations. Um, but I mean, it's nice. Again, they're trying to be nice. Um, right. And then it's also to draw a distinction of yeah. like the the point is that it's fake. It's not real, and it's right. bad. Which is like, there's been versions of this in journalism. It's like what the Daily Show used to be or whatever. Which is like this is fake journalism in a way, but it is like it is journalism.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it is.
2: <laughs> it's not real, but it's still real. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So I want to talk about your book, but I would love for you to read a little bit from it first. Can you read the part I asked you about, about the time you took Peter to Wolfstock, uh, a dog festival in Canada?
3: I couldn't put Peter through any more Woofstock after his devastating loss, so he left to return the next day. When we woke on the morning of day two, the rains had migrated and the sun was shining, which made for a much more tightly packed whoopstock experience, similar, I imagine, to the sort of crowd Puppy Hendrix, Janice Joplik, and Bone Baez drew all those years ago. My apologies. Still, because we were there quite early, we were one of the first in line for the second day's most exciting new attraction, the lurk horse. Are you familiar with lurk horses? In them, a dog chases a piece of fabric or plastic, the lure, meant to remind them of a rabbit they like to murder. It's fastened to a line that is wrapped around several pulleys placed throughout an obstacle course. The lure can be tricky, cutting sharp corners and traveling through tires, etc., and dogs have a lot of fun chasing it. Each dog ahead of us was so tempted by the lyingly non-rabbit lure that they had to be physically restrained until they were officially allowed to run. It was very sweet. Once allowed, they zoomed around the course with glee, jumping, diving, turning, sprinting. We all had fun watching them. The line grew very long behind me while we waited for our turn, and I couldn't wait for Peter's moment to shine. When it was finally our turn, Peter took his place in front of the lure. My heart was pounding. We waited for the lure to finally fly from its resting place, and then, finally, whoosh, it was released. Peter took one look at it, turned around, sat on his little butt, and looked at me. Hmm? Yes? His eyes seemed to ask. Is this what you want me to do? Sit here on my little butt? Or am I supposed to be waiting for you to do something? If so, take your time. The lure course operator suggested that he might be more into it if I ran with him at the beginning, so we tried. The lure flew ahead of us, and I chased it, over a jump, down the course, around a corner with Peter right beside me. Oh gosh, I was really flying. When I thought he had enough emotional momentum, I stopped. Instantly, Peter also stopped. Oh, buddy. He did not want to do this, and once again, I couldn't blame him. There was a lot of pressure. A big crowd, a piece of fabric that hardly looked anything like a rabbit. Who are we kidding? His charm shone through his failure still, and we left the course to a large round of applause from the crowd. We deserved it. Just as Peter finished his brave display of lurk course non-compliance, the band Three Dog Day, haha, took the main stage. Because their performance was advised as a concert for dogs, I expected the sort of loopy, trippy, relax-my-dog-style music available on YouTube and various music streaming services that you play when you leave the house in case dogs actually do like it in order to assuage some guilt. Instead, they played regular four human songs that had the word dog in them, beginning their set with How Much Is That Dog In The Window?, A song that weighs the cost of a dog against his apparent worth is an odd choice to play for a crowd of dogs, in my opinion, but of course I would never attempt to police someone's art. Up next on the Don't Disappoint Your Dog schedule was the Furtastic Canines Performance and Stunt Dog Team. While the dogs on the stunt team were certainly furtastic, leaping, catching frisbees, uh, leaping, the most spirited moment came when a French bulldog beside me jumped and jumped and jumped, tricking his owner into lifting him up to see the performance. The performance took place inside a four-foot-high gate, so Peter and most of the other dogs were not able to view it. The French bulldog, playing his owner like a fool, then completed his plan by jumping from his owner's arms directly into the arena. Freedom! Freedom! Freedom to join the fantastic canine's performance and stunt dog team! He was promptly removed. The dog talent show took place on the main stage. I guess I'm not sure the level of talent one should expect from a crowd of dogs gathered for the sake of enjoying a festival, but a few people had acts ringers there to scoop up the glory for themselves they had their dogs dance jump on their backs things like this most however did not have very well-defined talents and i think that is just fine one woman's dog a very tiny chihuahua punched her in the face okay the woman i respected the most got up on stage and announced her dog did not have a talent and that they would be winging it the dog did absolutely nothing her promise was fulfilled and i do believe they should have won peter did not compete because i think it should be obvious by now that he has too much self-respect That's great.
2: Can you tell me the story of realizing Peter was your muse?
3: Um, Yeah. So a lot of my writing is just like what I'm doing immediately. Like I'm having a donut and then, you know, write about how isn't it so great that you could buy a donut for a dollar or whatever. Um. So it, it sort of came out of that mindset and just being around him all the time that – All of my ideas became about him, Um, Mm -hmm. and I so I would write about him for the cut, and I wrote about him for the outline. But then eventually, it was just like um, I can't keep writing articles about my dog. (laughs) (laughs) People want me to write articles about other stuff. Um, Sure. So then it became a book.
2: I was thinking about this post and peter and i realized one similarity is peter's also a man um you mentioned this in the book that you know that dogs can be women uh but i sort of can't imagine you writing about a female dog um it just seems like well kelly would be writing about a male like i just have you thought about this
3: (laughs) yes well yeah um and you're not the only person who has thought that my i my friend Leah, I think, once said to me, like, I can't imagine you, she has a, a female dog named Baby. And she's like, I can't imagine you with a female dog, which is a weird thing, I think, to say to someone. Um, but also, I, I guess, I mean, I've never cared for a female dog. I've never had one. Um, <laughs> I guess that, yeah, the, the boy dynamic, writing about a, a little boy is just... Um, sort of my my wheelhouse
2: yeah i guess also the alternative would be like the sort of language that is like complimenting a woman mm-hmm. is like much more cliche in society currently yeah that's true like, i wouldn't
3: that's it true. would be it's like broad to to be... city <laughs> yeah it's easier to be sort of silly when you're saying your male dog looks like audrey hepburn or whatever <laughs>
2: yeah uh, of the conversations we've had um, 1,000 times, one was, what the hell will we ever write books about? Because people are like, you should write books. Mm-hmm. And now in retrospect, um, now that yours is out and I'm currently on- working on mine, the answer was like extremely obvious.
3: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd <laughs> write a book about like. <laughs> Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> the thing we write only about all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh especially now that you've done it, what about Peter felt like the right vehicle for a Kelly Connaboy book?
3: Um partly just that like I love him so much and I'm so curious about him that I can spend a whole book writing about him without boring myself um mm-hmm. and without just wanting to stop, I guess. Um But yeah, like I said, I I had all of these things I was curious about in terms of him and all of these things I wanted to write about that didn't really, unless I started a website that was like peter.com, it it wasn't going to really make sense anywhere. So yeah, a book was sort of became the obvious thing.
2: I think the thing that we most share as writers is we're both motivated by not being bored while working on it. Yeah. I think that is... (laughs) That is the thing that has become abundantly clear. Yeah. Um, clearly, you you were motivated by people knowing things about Peter, but um, reading the book, it, there's a lot about you. Some of that I didn't know. Some that I knew. That I think you, a person, really gets to spend time with, like how a person like that is you thinks about their their world. Um, what about telling Peter's story allowed you to share? The parts of yourself you wanted to be known, um, and what about yourself did you hope the readers did learn?
3: Um, yeah, that was a, a probably the most difficult thing um, about writing the book because, like, like you mentioned, in my writing, I'm not I'm me, but I'm not really me. I'm sort of, you know, a sillier um, version, but I couldn't really not be me in the book. Um, like I'm still, a, you know, a sillier version, but I'm not the like arrogant weirdo that yeah. I have to be to do some of the other writing that I do. Um, so that was difficult, but and yeah, I, I'm not really used to writing about personal stuff. I I, I shied away from that um, for my whole career basically um, until this book, but I found that. Uh, something that sort of helped me have less anxiety about it is the fact that like, you know, this is a humor book, but it's pretty much going to be read by dog people. Um, That's like the audience. And, you know, dog people are, I have to assume, sort of crazy in all the same ways. And I feel like a lot of people are going to read the stories and think about not me, but themselves and their own relationship to their dog and their own experiences with their dog which helped um but i don't know if that's even going to be true in people's reading of it but it was enough to think that it might be that it it helped get over the the fear of just writing about myself but i don't know what i want people to know about me um i <laughs> like the i guess the main things that i want them to know about me are like i i start the book off Um, talking about how it makes me feel a little bit guilty to be taking a paycheck to write about Peter, and I try to explain myself (laughs) in terms of that, um, (laughs) which I think probably most people would have maybe written that and then not included it, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm happy that part is out there that I could at least explain myself, even if people read it and are like, oh my God, I'm already annoyed by this. (laughs) You know?
2: So some of the book does come from stories you did online in some capacity, and it's not necessarily a collection of blog posts, but, but in what ways do you feel like it is an extension of you as a blogger?
3: I do a lot of the same um, tricks, which is like have a, Dumb idea, and reach out to an expert about like why specifically can dogs not talk or, or whatever. Um, or like, there's a part where I changed the lyrics to a, a Bruce Springsteen song to be about Peter, which is you know very bloggy. Um, yeah, so there. I mean, there are a lot of blogging elements. R- really, the thing that the the main distinction is that there's so much personal stuff too, and that there's kind of like a through line a very faint throughline story through all of them all of the essays. I would say it's very bloggy, which is surprising.
2: <laughs> what do you mean by it's surprising?
3: Well, I was going to say it's it's surprising that a book can be as bloggy as it is, I guess, and then I was just like allowed to to do it, especially with like I have the full chapters but then I have the little half chapters which are just blog posts basically. Yeah, yeah. Um and they were blog posts that i had ideas for um yeah. and then just was told that like no you can't you can't write this
2: um when people ask me what i do for a living i say i'm a writer and then depending on what conversation i want to have i'll be more specific uh, or if they're like what do you mean and then they i have to explain um, because sometimes i don't feel like having to have a whole conversation about comedy when i'm about to leave a party um, <laughs> as you know um, but when I see the word blogger or if I hear someone say the word blogger, usually, like, when they're making fun of bloggers, like, ah, oh, bloggers, blah, blah, blah. I'm yeah. like, that's me. How dare you? Like, it's still, <laughs> like, in my core, I think that's that's who I am. Like, as I'm writing a book, I think of that. I'm like, it's still, the typing feels like what, like, when I feel like I'm writing well, I feel like I'm blogging.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, um. You've, you have, however, you are an author, however. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You wrote a book. I have three copies. Um, <laughs> it's in the world. It has a hardcover. What about you?
3: Um. Well, I think I can't say I'm a blogger anymore because I don't have a job writing online. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess I, I just say I'm a writer, but I definitely, uh, I don't take offense to the term blogger, and I, in spirit, that is what I would consider myself. Um, I think people definitely use the term as like a pejorative and in, in a mean way, almost exclusively, yeah. <laughs> um, but I also feel like all of those people are boring writers, and maybe yeah. they should. Fucking try to come up with an interesting way to package their damn story, like a blogger would. <laughs> you know, like I don't know. People are so boring and annoying. Um, yeah, that's
2: true. Um, <laughs> not you. What do you feel like? There's a future of blogging? Not us, just, of course. Not us. Sorry. Uh, do you think there's a future of blogging at all? Like, do you think you look at Substack and you're like, I think that counts?
3: Um. Well, I f- my hope is that. I think Substack is like (laughs) people sort of realizing, again, that they want to read people writing in their own voices about the little things that are interesting to them, which I hope will evolve into people saying like, hey, what if a bunch of these writers were in the same place (laughs) and you only had to pay one membership fee or whatever, (laughs) Um, that, that is sort of my hope. Um, I mean, I, there are newsletters that I really love, like Edith Zimmerman's and Allie Jones have great newsletters. Um, and I, am always so happy to see them in my mailbox, but I wish instead I could, you know, work at a website with Allie Jones and Edith Zimmerman and we could all sort of talk together and come up with stories, (laughs) but I think it might happen. It might come back.
2: Yeah. One day. Whoever's Sunday. listening, if you are a eccentric millionaire and want to yeah. do this.
3: Have a, a little blogging feather in your little cap.
2: Then call me up.
3: Yeah, call us. We'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's the laughing round. It's like a, a lightning round, but because this is... um. A, a comedy show it's it's called the laughing Round. um do <laughs> a favorite joke joke like a street joke or a dad joke or whatever joke
3: <laughs> okay um did you get a haircut no i got them all cut <laughs> uh
2: i do like that joke
3: <laughs>
2: um okay. what is something you wish you wrote um I want to ask comedians, it's usually a joke they wish they could steal. So mm-hmm. it'd be like a, a, any sort of writing could be a blog post that you wish you wrote and be like, I wrote that thing and everyone loves it and me too. And I'm a genius for doing it.
3: It would be um, Edith Zimmerman's, her column from the all from a long time ago, letters to the editors of women's magazines. That was so freaking funny. Oh my God.
2: <laughs> it's the holiday season. What's a good... Candle to give as a gift. For context, you used to review candles. Mm -hmm. But you're still an expert in my opinion, because I don't know who else I would ask.
3: Thank you. (laughs) Um I I definitely recommend this uh brand Keep, K-E-A-P. Um, they have a my favorite candle, um, wood cabin is the Mm -hmm. scent. Um, it's great, great for winter, sustainable. Well, kind of, kind of, maybe more expensive than you'd want to pay for a candle, but not more expensive than I would want to pay for a candle. So,
2: mm-hmm.
3: keepwood cabin. Do
2: you have a favorite Gilmore Girl joke?
3: Yeah, there's one that always. I actually just saw it <laughs> recently in my my current rewatch, um, where uh, the grandparents, the Richard, the grandfather, his mom is visiting, and he. His mom and the grandmother um, don't like each other, and the grandmother suggests uh, that they go to the arboretum um, for the day to, you know, have an activity. And the uh, Richard's mother says, um, "I don't want to spend the day around plants, Emily. I'm not a bee." <laughs> it always makes me laugh. Uh, I'm not a bee. <laughs>
2: uh thank you thank you so much that was that was great
3: thank you so much for having me thank you for being my friend
2: oh yeah thank you for being my friend i should have said that that would, that would be classy <laughs> that's it for another episode of good one you can buy the particulars of peter wherever books are sold follow kelly on social media at kelly Connaboy. good one is produced by myself jelani carter hannah rosen and camila salazar god did our theme song Write a view and rate the show on Apple Podcasts five stars. Please email in comments, questions, or laughing round suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox. And you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Catherine Van Arendonk and the best specials of the year. Have a good one.
1: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night.